Welcome to Horsepower to Hyperloops, Kettering University's official podcast, where we serve up a smorgasbord of fascinating people, groundbreaking ideas, and noteworthy advancements in fields as diverse as mobility, healthcare, engineering, and technology. Our interns right now, which we have four or five currently working, they start by doing the disassembly. That is the best way to learn, is to understand how things come apart. Every piece is mapped, every nut, every screw. So we build essentially the blueprint to how the car went together, and then we do the cost analysis on how everything is manufactured. Hi, I'm Tim Troop Noonan, host of the In the Mix series at Horsepower to Hyperloops, and that was Corey Steuben. Kettering class of 2010 and president of engineering and manufacturing consulting firm Monroe and Associates in Auburn Hills, Michigan. Steuben, who began as a co-op student at Monroe in 2005, has, even during the pandemic, dramatically expanded the company since becoming president in 2020, adding revenue streams which have fostered record-setting growth over the past 18 months. One of these has been Monroe Live a YouTube channel dedicated to interviews, teardowns, and other video-friendly subjects from Monroe. They've proved immensely popular, drawing hundreds of thousands of viewers. And a recent interview with Elon Musk drew over 2.2 million. For those of you wanting to watch a Monroe Live episode, go to YouTube and type in M-U-N-R-O-L-I-V-E. In the first podcast for Horsepower to Hyperloops in front of a live audience, I recently spoke with Corey in the Sunset Room of the Campus Center at Kettering University. Hi, everyone. Welcome. I'm Tim Troop Noonan. Thanks for coming out today to our live podcast with Corey Steuben, Kettering Class of 2010. Corey is president of Monroe and Associates in Auburn Hills and the developer of the very popular podcast, Monroe Live. Corey, thanks for coming up today and for bringing that very cool late model Tesla that we're all going to go check out a little bit later. So, Corey, you landed here at Kettering as a freshman in 2005 from Nebraska, and it was very shortly after that, in fact, it was right here in this room, I think, and almost by accident, that you first learned about Monroe and Associates. So I'd like to start, if you would, by asking you to tell us about all that and about Monroe. So a little bit about Monroe and Associates. Founded in 1988 by Sandy Monroe. He's a stalwart of the automotive industry in Detroit, worked at Ford and GM. He broke off and started his own company with three other people. And the company slowly grew to 25 people by the time I got there in 2005. So in 2005, I showed up here in July, similar to this, and I went to the job fair. And there was all these amazing displays by General Motors and Continental. And I saw this lowly little table with one guy standing behind it with nothing, no banners, no anything. And I kind of felt sorry for the guy. So I walked up to him because I didn't want to wait in line for GM and Continental and Ford. I chatted it up. He was the only other intern at Monroe at the time. His name was Ryan. And the fact that my father was a mechanic, they really wanted that skill set because at Monroe, we do teardowns. And we say anything from Barbie to the space station because it's actually true. 
we worked with Mattel to refine the manufacturing processes for the Barbie before I got there. And we also worked on the space station. And anything in between aerospace, defense, medical, I was drawn to Monroe based on the variety. As a co-op, many people went to Ford or GM or Magna or Continental, all great career paths, I'm not dissing them. But they work on a gear shift lever for three years. Or maybe they were just a calibrator for five years. I was drawn to the fact that I could have a diverse experience at Monroe & Associates. So fast forward five years, I graduate from Kettering. It's the depth of like the recession, 2009. Monroe is gracious enough to offer me a job and I became essentially a consultant for seven years. I primarily consulted on EV technology, Monroe and Associates. We advised the EPA on the CAFE standards. So before EVs were a thing, Monroe and Associates made a shift towards identifying electric technology, the costs, the pitfalls, the manufacturing streams for those items. In 2017, I became the account director for our largest account with Fiat Chrysler Automobiles. And after two years of that, I was appointed president in 2020. The outgoing president was 67 years old and I was chosen over four or five individuals in their 40s or 50s. This isn't about age. I'm not gonna say it was an age decision, but it shocked quite a few people that Sandy Monroe at 70 years old chose a 30 year old to lead the company into the future. Three months after I took the role of president, the pandemic was upon us. And the main reason I'm here is to talk about what happened when the pandemic hit. And to be frank, our company was $2.5 million in debt when we entered 2020. It was not run very profitable. And I have zero MBA, zero finance experience. But my number one goal was to get the company out of the debt and survive. We had a Tesla Model Y showing up on March 29th of 2020, which was four or five days after the whole state shut down. And we had a meeting. We had a meeting a few days before that, and I pitched to the management team, to the two VPs, the owner and our uh, head of marketing, that we should put all of the teardown on YouTube. And originally, I wanted it to be actually live. And that's why it's called Monroe Live. If you see the magnets that are on your chair, it was my idea to essentially survive the pandemic. The owner of the company, Sandy Monroe, had no idea what YouTube was. He actually didn't know what YouTube was. And I'm not kidding. He didn't. And he called it his blog, vlog, podcast for six months. He didn't even know what to call it when we talked about it. But as we were getting ready to launch, I did a ton of research into how to launch a YouTube channel. And it's amazing the amount of information that's out there. I have zero experience as a marketer, as a media person or a videographer, but one thing I did have in my pocket was an iPhone 11 Pro, which is actually a phenomenal piece of equipment from a videography perspective. So one thing that's critical for launching a platform is to get a lot of external buy-in on launch. So we had Bloomberg, Autoline Detroit, and Jalopnik all coming in right before the pandemic shut down, and I shamelessly asked them, could you please just mention that the teardown will be on YouTube, Monroe Live? They all said, ah, sure, no problem. These are major media firms, and they agreed. So a few days after they left, I had already filmed the first six episodes. They mentioned on Bloomberg, they mentioned on Autoline, I released all six episodes. We shot up to 30,000 subscribers in a week. 
and we're now at 202,000 subscribers. What that means is we're approaching the 99th percentile of YouTube channels on the globe. We have more daily traffic than an average sitcom would have in the 90s. From watch time perspective, Sandy Monroe is essentially now a celebrity. We headed out to Silicon Valley to interview Jagdeep Singh, a billionaire who started QuantumScape. We landed that interview. We interviewed Elon Musk, which I'll probably tell the story of, of how that happened. Our sales process is completely different. We used to have to beg clients, please let us do work for you. We're now commanding down payments. People pay in full. We've doubled in revenue, 220% increase. We've hired 17 people since January. This isn't a bragging session. It's just, I wanted to show what not one Kettering grab, but three, because the channel was launched with myself, Scott Hoffman and Tyler Schlink, and a little bit of Nicholas Schottka. So that's a 2012 grad, a 2017 grad, a 2011 grad, and a 2010 grad. This was... Right now, we've had so much momentum that we're actually generating close to a quarter million dollars in revenue each month just on ad revenue from our videos and merchandise sales. The bumper stickers that you see on the chairs, we sold 3,500 of those last month, $50 a piece if they're signed, bringing in $100,000 just in bumper stickers. So Monroe & Associates is a small company, but our impact is growing and growing and growing. And it's allowed us to also attract phenomenal co-ops. We recently hired four co-ops, 2A, 2B section, to jumpstart our co-op program. We interviewed close to I think 20 or, or 30, our top four we got. And we also pitched to the co-ops that when they come in, they can have a role in directing, scripting, or even starring in the YouTube channel. We're not opposed to having people come in and out. So that is the background of Monroe started in 1988, all the way through to where we're at now. And I'm here to hopefully answer some questions that people have here or and also continue the conversation. Well, I think we've got a lot of everybody can jump in with questions uh, as well as me. But let me ask you another thing. That is so many new revenue streams and so mm -hmm. impressive. What about your core business? Tell us a little bit about that that was there before. And how's that been affected by the pandemic and this new way of doing business? So our core business is benchmarking and cost analysis. So clients will come to us with a product and it's either too expensive to manufacture, they're not making enough profit, or their competitors are beating them. I'll give you a very specific example. In the summer of 2020, I received an email from a man named Dan, who was the vice president of engineering at a grill company. I can't say which grill company, but I'll say a few. Weber, Traeger, Pit Boss, one of the three. He said, hey, look, we wanna make a few new products can you help us benchmark our grill, our competitor's grill, and our future's design? So we have eight grills show up. So we're more than electric vehicles. We're more than aircraft. So we actually, we had to benchmark the grills. So what do we do? We cook briskets for two weeks. <laughs> we really did. So there's a lot of fringe benefits to being in a multi-industry company because when that project ended, the, each of the grills and smokers were completely disassembled. Guess what our interns did? They put them back together and I have one on my patio now. <laughs>
Well, you also uh, do like entire uh, systems of mm-hmm. uh, not not necessarily tangible systems as well as plants and th- yeah. all kinds of things. So right before we left, my videographer, Eric and I, we walked by seven or eight large crates. I mean, huge crates. And it's a company called Lidos, found out about us through the YouTube channel. They make the backscatter scanning machines that are used by TSA to scan your baggage behind the scenes at the airport. So when you check a baggage, all the bags get scanned through these massive machines. We're setting up the entire assembly line in our facility to do a benchmarking cost reduction analysis activity. But they also asked if our videography crew could film brand new material for installation and training. So the YouTube channel itself may seem pretty pedestrian, like anybody can create an account and start to put content on it, but it's starting to be an add-on revenue stream to much of our work. I believe we have a question from the audience, Corey, regarding the Tesla and how you used it. So Jack's question was about the Tesla, the Model 3, I'll start there. So in 2018, we purchased a Tesla Model 3 on our own from a broker so that we could get it quickly. And it was VIN number 1100, very early Tesla Model 3. We tore it down, and this was before the YouTube channel, and several media outlets, Bloomberg, AutoLine, Wall Street Journal, covered our negative criticism of it because the build quality of Tesla was very poor early on. They had amazing technology, their battery technology, their motor technology, their infotainment technology, leading the world by anywhere from three to seven years. And I could go into detail, maybe not not right now. But how the vehicle was built, the gaps, the fit and finish, not so good. So we had a lot of attention. We then bought the Model Y in 2020, which was the precipice and the main star of the YouTube channel. The Model Y had taken many of the criticisms that we had and they had implemented them. So what Tesla does that many other OEMs, either in Detroit or around the world, what Tesla does that they don't do is they don't think like a car company. Elon Musk held a matchbox car in his hand and the whole bottom of the car is one piece. If you've ever held a a Hot Wheel, he said, why can't my car be one piece? Well, the cars that he will be making from 2021 on into the future will be three. A typical body in white, if you've ever been in a plant or seen a vehicle, has thousands of parts. Small stamp parts that are welded together in a complex symphony of machines. All of that effort, all of that labor, all of that engineering doesn't have to happen. And Tesla partnered with a company in Europe called Hydra, and they make the largest press in the world to make mega castings. So there's the whole rear of the car and the whole front of the car are made in one piece. Nobody ever thought that this could be done. Nobody thought that Tesla could have a car that would survive any mileage with 4,416 AA batteries. Essentially, that's what a Tesla is. The battery is slightly larger than a AA. It's 21 by 70 millimeters. And there's 4,416 that are daisy chained together. 44 in parallel, and then those sets of 44 in parallel times 96 to get your high voltage. The amount of connections and wire bonds is incredible, but they've proven that that's the most efficient way to make a vehicle. And Volkswagen, Ford, GM are all playing catch up. 
We have all of their vehicles as well tore down in our facility. And we're constantly highlighting these revelations on the YouTube channel. We're currently halfway through tearing down a Ford Mustang Mach-E. It's not nearly as popular, but it still is getting a lot of views. Don't you have an entire center, a benchmarking center there? Yeah, we have a 45,000 square foot facility, which we dedicate to tear down and research. We also have another 60,000 square foot center that supports one OEM specifically with 25 vehicles. Many of our engineers at the age of 28 and 29 are now advising small EV startups as program managers and they are phenomenally well-trained because being exposed to close to 25 to 30 vehicles a year, every piece, every part, every manufacturing methodology arms you with an incredible amount of information that makes us very valuable as consultants. So our core competency, as you mentioned, is consulting. We help clients make their products better, higher quality, and ultimately more profit. We have a question about intellectual property and how that factors in when you're analyzing someone's vehicle or any other device. So the very first thing we do before we tear a vehicle down is we pull all patents. So we'll spend up to three or four months researching not only the patents, the ones that are being utilized, but the ones that have been submitted. So we knew when our Tesla Model Y showed up that Tesla had already patented a liquid-cooled high voltage charging cable. So the first thing we did when we tore it down, we looked to see if they utilized that patent. They didn't. They patented what they call the octovalve, which is their, it's a heat pump system that's very elegantly designed to reduce part count and weight. The octovalve patent had eight different versions. We reviewed them, I saw them, and Tesla oftentimes uses it as a Trojan horse. They will release all these patents that are actually slightly off of what they're using. And it's great. So they're misleading many of the people like myself, or they will have refined it by the time that it ended up in production. Benchmarking has been around essentially since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Once a vehicle is out in the public, it is free to study. Consider it R&D, so research and development. And when it comes to battery technology, there is, batteries are heavily patented, particularly the form factor and the chemistry. So GM with their Ultium platform, Tesla with their 4680, they're completely new shapes, form factors, and slightly tweaked chemistry. So there has not been a homogenization of technology for electric vehicles. Every EV does it completely different. They may have a pouch style cell, but the way the pack is constructed is completely different. It's like the renaissance for being an engineer. If you were a brake engineer right now, the brake system on a vehicle is essentially the same, either fixed or sliding caliper on every car you drive. You do a brake job on a BMW or a Nissan or a Toyota, very, very similar, because that is the best way to do a disc brake system, those two ways. The EV industry is not there. Every battery structure is different, what's integrated, what's not integrated, where all the components are, the types of connectors and wires, there has not been the best that's bubbled up to the top. That may not happen for a decade or even more. We're speaking with Corey Steuben, Kettering Class of 2010, president of Monroe & Associates in Auburn Hills, Michigan, and the founder of the hugely popular engineering, automotive, and mobility YouTube show, Monroe Live. Tell us a story about the Tesla that's sitting out there and 
how Elon Musk figures into this. Oh, the Elon Musk story. So in January of this year, we were looking for some content for our channel. So in December of 2020, I was walking through the shop with Sandy. I said, we should buy a 2021 Model 3. So we had already tore down an old Model 3, a 2020 Model Y. A 2021 Model 3 was supposed to have some updated heat pump system as well as some casting things. And then I said, yeah, we can do a road trip. I said, all right. So we get the car in January. We plan our road trip. We were going to head just to California to visit the chief technical officer of Faraday Future, another small EV startup. So our only destination was Malibu, California. We had no, nothing else planned. Well, as we get going, we started posting on the YouTube channel that, hey, we're on our way. So every Tesla owner group from Detroit to California, oh, meet up with us. So we met up with the Denver Tesla Club, about 10 people. They bought us food, mostly Sandy, the star of the show. By the time we got to California, we had crowds of 30, 40, 50 waiting to ask Sandy questions. Some of those meetups are actually on the channel. We get to Malibu, the trip was starting to get a lot of attention on Twitter and Reddit and whatnot. And as we're headed up the coast, we were gonna visit another EV company called Archimoto in Oregon. We stop in the Bay Area where Tesla is. Elon was actually in Texas preparing his rockets for launch. That's an eight, nine, and 10. If you're familiar with Elon Musk's rocket endeavors, he's developing some rockets in Texas. We got an email, a random email from, I won't give her name, from Elon's personal assistant. And said, hello, this is so-and-so. I'm Elon's personal assistant. Elon would love to meet you. Can you meet us in Fremont on Friday or something? We said, sure, we'll be there. The next day we get to Oregon, we got a text. The rockets didn't launch. So they said, hey, we got a scratch. Can you meet us in Brownsville, Texas? Now granted, we are in essentially Portland, Oregon. And Brownsville, Texas was 2,800 miles away and they want us there in three days, which meant we had to drive essentially the entire time in an electric vehicle. So if you wanna talk about range anxiety, the range of an EV is roughly 350 miles, the one we had. You can really only drive 290 and we stretched it from Eugene, Oregon to Kalmuth Falls, from Kalmuth Falls to Reno, Nevada, from Reno, Nevada to somewhere in the middle of Nevada, to somewhere in the middle of Nevada, to somewhere else in the middle of Nevada. We essentially got to Phoenix in one day. We slept for four or five hours, got back in the car, drove straight through to Brownsville, Texas. And Texas is huge, it's 800 miles. We get to Texas on Friday. The rocket was supposed to launch that day. It got scrubbed. So we get a text from Elon's personal assistant. Hey, can you meet us at five? Yes. We show up at 4.30. The meeting got moved again to seven. So it's Friday and Elon Musk is still working at 7 p.m. We show up, we walk in, we get introduced to Elon Musk and Sandy has a short conversation with him as I'm setting up this exact setup right there. And we walk into a conference room, no entourage, no security, no secretary, just Jen walking around in a normal conference room. We sat down, we interviewed Elon Musk for an hour. That wasn't the best part. Once we were finished, he had a SpaceX meeting right after on the Raptor engine. So they're currently developing a new Raptor engine that's a higher thrust load than the other one. He asked us to stay. Sandy Monroe and I sat four feet from Elon Musk right behind him for two and a half hours as his meeting kept going on all the way into the night. At this point, Sandy and I hadn't slept at all. We had driven straight from 
I don't even know where, we, we didn't sleep that night before. Sandy was starting to doze off and we actually got up and left on our own volition. We could have stayed. I have no idea what would have happened, but <laughs> we got up and said, hey, thank you for the time and we left. As I walked out, there was still 30 or 40 cars in the parking lot at SpaceX, 11.30 p.m. Everyone was still working on a Friday. So if you drive by a major organization around here, typically Friday, there's nobody in the parking lot. Elon Musk and his mantra is nobody ever changes the world in a 40-hour work week. And everybody was rowing along with him. So it was really unique to see him in action, to see how he operates. He never once checked his phone. He didn't look at a computer. He sat there and was engaged the entire time. Very respectful. And since seeing Elon Musk do that, when somebody walks into my office, I no longer touch my phone or my computer because if Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, can dedicate two, three hours to Sandy Monroe, myself, and our small YouTube channel, then I should be able to afford that same respect to anybody else. How many views did you have on that? 2.2 million. And to put that in perspective, the Wall Street Journal interviewed Elon Musk a month earlier. They got a million views on theirs and we got 2.2. So I'm always trying to judge you know, how we're doing. But he called you because he had followed Monroe Live. Oh yeah. Right? yeah. You talk about Monroe being a destination company mm -hmm. for employees, students. You've got an extraordinary package. Talk a little bit about that package, how you're doing that, the Kettering graduates that you have there, mm -hmm. and generally the what's entailed with making it a destination company. Yeah. So we currently have nine Kettering graduates and four co-ops, maybe a fifth co-op that's just graduating, who we're going to give an offer. And when I was a young co-op, there wasn't a lot of thought put into how Monroe and Associates stacked up against General Motors or Ford. So I pushed for best-in-class pay when I became an account director because I found it difficult to retain talent. As an engineering firm, our people, that is all we have. Their brains, their intellect, their knowledge, we must retain that. We do not make parts or widgets or cars. It's our people. As president, I have pushed for, by far, best-in-class postgraduate wages. So when we pull people away, we typically offer them anywhere from twenty dollars to $40,000 more than they're making. It has to be an obvious decision that if they're at a supplier making X, they're going to come here and they will immediately feel valued in their pay. And pay should never be an issue at all. Because if we invest in people, they are going to, in turn, produce a phenomenal amount of output for us. So I, I recently hired a guy named Chad Turner. He was a 2012 graduate, phenomenal. He's supporting one of our defense programs. He is blowing the army away, no pun intended. Uh, we hired a Kettering grad named Adam Leach. He was a 2008 grad. He worked at several startups in Massachusetts. We pulled him away from those startups. Our co-ops that we hired were phenomenal. I would not have hired me if I interviewed me. I did not take part in the co-op uh, interview process, but I believe we have one here. Is that Mia? Yeah. Welcome. Yeah. So our co-ops were amazing, so well put together, such phenomenal backgrounds. And we want to make sure that when they show up, 
they can see not only growth in their career, but a diversity in what they work on. And I want them to stay. We had so many co-ops come and leave in the past, and I don't want that to ever be a problem again. So when it comes about Monroe being a destination, I want to completely eliminate us competing with GM and Ford and, and Delta and Chrysler when it comes to 401k healthcare, pay, and benefits. You've said something to me earlier also about a philosophy of leadership as it pertains to relationships and why you were chosen to lead the company. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. So early on in my career, when I was a co-op, I noticed that I could, I could perform some tasks maybe faster than one of our senior engineers. And how I went about my early career was maybe abrasive. If I could work really fast, I wanted to show upper management that, hey, look at me, I got all this done quickly. But early on in my career, I was damaging some relationships with some of the senior engineers. And I realized that I would know nothing without their tutelage. So about 2010, I started to mend some relationships that I may have damaged early on in my career because I knew that if I wanted a position of management, I couldn't have scorched earth or burned bridges as I moved forward. And in 2019, when I was announced that I was gonna be president, a lot of people were shocked that a few people above me were kind of passed over, but many of those people led with a different style, a little more abrasive and not as inclusive when it came to relationships. So talking with your president here, Robert, he seems very inclusive and very approachable. I'm not sure how he is around here, but I have a feeling that, that he's very popular. And I wanna foster an environment where everybody from a co-op to the VP can have the same type of rapport and be on equal footing. In terms of your core business, Corey, the teardowns and engineering consulting, who are your clients? Are they competitors of the vehicle you're tearing down or the manufacturers or both? So the answer is yes and yes, but I'll talk about the non-standard clients. Financial industry is a top buyer of our reports. So we will tear down a Tesla or a Mach-E and we'll write up a report which will highlight the entire cost of bill of material what everything costs and how you put it together. The reason that's really valuable to Wall Street or a hedge fund or the financial industry is they wanna see if they're being, I wanna say lied to, misled by either suppliers or the OEMs. And because our costing methodology is so steadfast and thorough, it's very easy for us to defend it. And Back when we were supporting the CAFE standard legislation approval in 2008, 9, and 10, our methodology was thoroughly vetted by the Senate, the United States government, on how we went about creating our cost structure. So there's the finance industry, as well as non-standard. So we're tearing down an EV. We may have a company that makes cameras or a company that makes cell phones that's looking to get into EV they don't know what they don't know, so they'll buy our report for $80,000 rather than buy a car for fifty dollars and then spend $600,000 worth of labor to tear it down. It costs us roughly $700,000 to create the report. We then will sell it dozens and dozens and dozens of times over for several years to get the payback on that. It's a new business model for us, and to answer your question, our interns right now which we have four or five currently working, they start by doing the disassembly. 
that is the best way to learn is to understand how things come apart. Every piece is mapped, every nut, every screw. So we build essentially the blueprint to how the car went together and then we do the cost analysis on how everything is manufactured. Corey, what did a Kettering education provide for you that allowed for you to have the career that you've had? First thing is the co-op program. So showing up, knowing that I needed to get a job as a freshman, helped me grow up a lot quicker than someone, let's say, at Michigan State or Western that may have to do one or two internships. So the co-op program allowed me to be thrown in doing a lot of not only learning, but engineering work. So when I graduated, I felt like I had a massive advantage. Also, I liked the fact that there wasn't as many distractions. I felt like I would have been easily distracted going to U of M, Michigan State, or I'm from Nebraska, University of Nebraska. They called University of Nebraska Lincoln 13th grade because everybody went from 12th grade there. And I felt like I was able to focus better here, the shorter terms being 11 weeks. I like the accelerated pace, but the co-op program still was the anchor of what I think made me who I am today. That was really the biggest draw. Corey Steuben, Kettering Class of 2010 and president of Monroe and Associates, thank you very much. Join us again to hear Kettering University's podcast, Horsepower to Hyperloops, available from wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.